Sometimes on Mother's Day, I think about how difficult I was for my mother. My dad was uh, in seminary at the time, studying to be, uh, to go into ministry. I was five years old. And one day I woke up on a Sunday morning and informed my parents that I was boycotting church. It's not what a parent wants to hear. And so after my Sunday school time, I ran away out from the church and ran into the woods and hid. I was eventually retrieved. And now I have to call my mother this afternoon and thank her for persevering with me uh, because uh, I don't know how she endured it, uh, but she did. Thank you for all the moms here who love your kids well, even when they boycott church. Kids, if you try to boycott church today, you're on your own. I will not bail you out. So I hope you keep your finger in Mark 4. We've been studying this book. We took a little break last week as we had our Go conference. We're continuing the Gospel of Mark, and what Mark is describing to his uh, readers, who undoubtedly are in Rome at the time, is he's trying to help them understand that the King, Jesus, has come to reestablish God's rule and reign on the earth. And for Mark's readers, who are believers in Rome, and probably in, uh, you know, middle 60s there, that first hundred years common era, there was a fire that swept through Rome, and Nero, the emperor, blamed it on the Christians, and now there's massive persecution to this small group of this new movement of followers of Jesus, and what they need to hear is encouragement to be faithful to the mission God has given them, to, to, to share the gospel of the kingdom to those around, him, around, around them. But they also need to understand why is it that this good news of the gospel of the kingdom is not universally accepted by those around them. In fact, there's lots of hostility towards Christians in this moment of time. Not only do Mark's original readers need to hear this, but we need the same kind of encouragement to continue the mission that Jesus has given us to share the message of the gospel of the kingdom to those around us. And so in order to help Mark's readers understand why the gospel of the kingdom of God was not universally accepted, to get this encouragement to stay faithful to sharing that message, Jesus begins to speak in parables, and that's what he does in Mark 4. And what we need to understand are four realities about the kingdom of God that these parables enable us to understand. Four realities, and let's look at the first reality. The first reality is this. We need to understand why Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God in parables. Look at verse 2 in Mark 4. He says, and he was teaching that many things in parables... And in his teaching, he said to them, and he goes on to share the first parable, the parable of the sower. Some of you may have learned in Sunday school, and this isn't all bad, that a parable is a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's 
true to some extent, but while that may encapsulate part of what a parables are, that definition actually is too simplistic. A parable is designed to shock the audience. A parable is designed to disturb an audience. The parable is designed to, to in some sense, destabilize the audience and, and hopefully cause the, the hearer of the parable to think more deeply about their own beliefs about life, but also to be confronted about the belief in the kingdom of God that Jesus is trying to communicate. And finally, a parable was not simply designed to help you understand the kingdom. It was designed to force the issue so that you would make a decision about the kingdom. That's what Jesus is trying to do as he speaks in parables. Now, the focus of Jesus' teaching in parables is on the kingdom of God. Take a look at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables and he said to them to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God but for those outside everything is in parables all of these parables are designed in Mark 4 particularly are designed to teach about the nature of God's kingdom and the problem that Jesus has here is the people he's speaking to and we ourselves are so used to the kingdom of this world, it's hard for us to truly understand the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is so antithetical. It's so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. Jesus would spend three years essentially with 12 people trying to help them understand this and even they can't get it straight. And it's very likely when we hear teaching about the kingdom of God is we take the kingdom of the world and its priorities and its features and we try to glom them onto the kingdom of God. And that always leads to distortion. It always leads to confusion. And it keeps us from truly understanding this counterintuitive nature of God's kingdom. Now, Jesus is going to tell a couple of parables in Mark 4. He's going to start with the parable of the sower. In verse 26, he will have the parable of the growing seed. And in verse 30, he begins the parable of the mustard seed. All of these parables are designed to shock, perplex, destabilize the hearer so that they will maybe take the next step and maybe they will move closer to the kingdom of God. But he's also attempting to, to de- call people to action. And, and, and Jesus seems quite comfortable, why he might not like this personally, he wants people either to take a step toward the kingdom of God, the real kingdom of God, or reject that kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of God. One more thing about the parables that's really important to understand is that a less than sensitive reading of this text might make you think that Jesus deliberately attempts to hide the truth from his audience. Let's go back to verse 11 in Mark 4. He says, to you has been given the the, the kingdom of God, God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, and then he quotes... From Isaiah 6, they, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, that they indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
And you read that and you say, well, is that why Jesus talked in parables? To deliberately hide the truth about the kingdom of God from people? But that's not what Isaiah is driving at. It's not what Jesus is driving at. What Jesus means is he quotes from Isaiah 6 that as God's teaching about his kingdom is made known, there will be people who will see see but not perceive. There will be people who hear but they won't understand. And when it says lest they should turn and be forgiven, it's almost saying there are going to be people who hear the teaching about the kingdom of God and they are going to reject that kingdom of God. The parables are some sense are designed to be a little bit of a funnel that causes people to think more deeply about the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God so that they might take the next step. And of course, some of them do. The 12 and others around him want to know more. And Jesus is happy to provide them with more information, not to disguise his teaching, but in some sense to protect his teaching of the kingdom of God so that people will not be too quick to take the principles of the kingdom of the world and push it on to his teaching of the kingdom of God. And so these parables, the three parables that we're going to look at are going to perplex us, I hope. I hope it shocks you. I hope it forces you to think more deeply about the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of this world. And I hope it begins to push you to make a decisive decision about which kingdom you're going to live in. And the present form of Jesus' kingship, this present age between the time of Jesus' coming and the time Jesus will consummate his complete kingdom, that's what Jesus is driving at. He wants us to understand what does his kingdom look like between now and the time he comes again and completely brings about the full force of his kingdom and restores the world and us and rightly bring it unto the rule of God. This is what the kingdom of God is going to look like right now. And what Jesus wants us to do is to understand this kingdom more deeply, but also to take action to be part of this kingdom that Jesus has ushered in. When he came to earth, he died and rose again. So that's the first reality. Why did Jesus talk about the kingdom in parables. But there's a second reality. And we'll look at the first parable, the parable of the sower. And what the parable of the sower tells us, teaches us, is there are going to be different responses to the gospel of the kingdom of God as we share that gospel in this world dominated by the kingdom of the world. Take a look at verse 3. Just briefly go through the parable. It's a simple story. He says, listen... A sower went out to sow. He sowed some seed. It fell among the path. The birds came and devoured it. So he sows some seed. It falls on a hardened path. The seeds don't even begin to grow. The birds come and take it away. Other seed falls on the rocky ground. There wasn't much soil there. Immediately the seed sprouts. Life has begun. But it didn't have a depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it scorched and it had no root and it withered. 
Other seed fell, and verse 7, fell among thorns. The thorns grew up, choked it. It yielded no grain. And other seed fell onto good soil, produced grain, growing up, and increased, yielding 30, 60, and 100-fold. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is describing what it looks like in the kingdom of God. And in verse 13, he will interpret the parable for us. And I need to warn you, some of you, and I know who some of you are, probably, you're going to be tempted to take a whole bunch of New Testament theology and jam it onto this parable. Don't do that. I know you shouldn't do it because I've done it. Don't do it. We need to take the parable as is. Take the text as is. What Jesus is driving at in this parable of the soil is as we partner with Jesus in his mission to bring about the rule and reign of God today on the earth in anticipation of his future kingdom, as we share the gospel, this good news of the kingdom of God, there's going to be all kinds of reactions to it. All kinds. So let's look at verse 13. Actually, verse 14. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the seed is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown to them. In other words, one reaction we're going to get when we sow the seed of the gospel to those around us, Satan's going to come in. He blinds people's minds. They are not going to respond to it in any way. They're going to be indifferent or hostile to it. And that's one of the reactions you're going to get. Have you ever had that happen? I think you probably have. But there's a second response that Jesus outlines. And we see that in, uh, in verse seven, uh, I'm sorry, verse 16. And those are the ones sown on ro- rocky ground. So some of the seed we sow, the gospel of the kingdom, is sown on rocky ground. The ones, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I've seen that many times. I've seen that here at Stonehill Church. Someone comes, they hear, they they seem to respond with joy. They seem to be all in. And the first bout of difficulties, the first bout of persecution or trials, they don't have deep enough roots. And they wither under the pressure of trials. Blame God for their trials in many cases. And they fall away. There's a third response. Verse 18, those and others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Other people hear the word of God, and, 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 and maybe they kind of have an initial sort of response to it, but the, the, the soil of their life is full of thorns, the cares of the world, desires for money. Uh, the, the, the desire for the kingdom of this world is more important to them than the kingdom of God. And over time, it chokes out the word. And they bear no fruit. Finally, there are others, verse 20, but those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word 
and accept it, and they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100. Sometimes as we share the gospel of the kingdom of God, somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. They're now rightly under the rule and reign of God. They are forgiven of their sins, and they become fruitful. They grow, and they share that gospel of the kingdom with others, and they are a fruitful testimony of God's goodness and the gospel, and they grow. I think Jesus is trying to tell us, and he's trying to tell, Mark's trying to tell his original readers in Rome, but he's trying to tell us. When you partner with Jesus, do what he says to do, you sow the seed, you sow the gospel, you share the gospel. Some people are going to be indifferent or hostile. Some people will will immediately receive it with joy, but the minute there's tribulation and trouble, they will fall away. Others will sort of slowly get choked out by the cares of the world, and some will be fruitful. And Jesus is trying to encourage us to say, when you partner with me and sow the seed, which is the job we have as the followers of Jesus today, these are the four kinds of responses you're going to get. And we have to be ready for that. We have to anticipate that. We have to expect that. And I think for some, if we're honest, because of the varying responses you've gotten to the sowing of the seed, this has affected you in negative ways. I can remember very vividly, I, was, uh, I got tired my freshman year of college of paying people to type my papers. This is before word processing children, okay, this is, uh, there are no computers, okay, you're typing on a typewriter, right, and it cost me a lot of money to have somebody type my paper, uh, so I, I enrolled in a typing class the summer after my freshman year, there were 15 of us in the class, I was the only male in the class, but I had a girl's name, so it was okay, We got to know each other quite well. It actually was a very collegial class. The instructor was really good. And we all got to share personal anecdotes and stuff. I shared about my faith. Told him I was planning to go to seminary one day so I could type sermons, you know. That's why I'm taking the class. Well, I prayed about this. There had been a lot of interaction. And all of the the women in the class treated me kind of like their little brother, right? Very kind to me. So I decided at the end of class, I wrote a personal note, a real personal note. I thought they were kind of good to each of the people in the class, including the instructor. And I included a little gospel tract. Now, I don't know if that was the wisest thing I could have done, but I was sowing the seed. I was 19 years old, so get off my back, okay? (laughs) I thought it was a good idea. I gave these out at the end of the last class. And one of the first women that I gave this to opened up, read the personal note, saw the gospel tract, and in front of the whole class came right up to me and tore the track in my face and said, I don't want to hear any of this. Well, that was a bad idea. But actually worked quite well because every other woman in the class felt so bad They came up to me after class, and as I was walking back to my car, I'm so sorry that happened. I promise I will read every word of that little booklet. (laughs) You're going to get various reactions when you sow the seed, and you've got to be prepared for that. 
I suspect some of you, I probably had this experience. I was a youth pastor back at Westerly Road Church before we moved in the building in the early 90s. And I can remember with horror that one of the students I had spent maybe the most time personally discipling, going on all kinds of ministry events. He, th this person in the youth group back then was probably responsible for half the youth group or his friends that he had brought to Christ. In two years, after he graduated and went away to college, I met with him during spring break. He'd come back into town, but being in college. And as I began to meet with him for lunch, in shock and horror, I realized this student is no longer following Jesus at all. They had had some difficulties. They had had some trials, just like the parable of the sower says. They had had some real difficulties come into their life. And to my shock and horror, this person's roots were not deep enough. They blamed God for the trials, and they were no longer following Jesus. And I was tempted that night. I mean, I was shocked. I was horrified. And because I didn't understand the parable of the sower as well as I should have, I, I, frankly, that night, I began to doubt the power of the seed. Does the power of the gospel, can it, I mean, how can it, how, this, this student was the, 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 the model of what every student should look like. This person brought many people to Jesus and to the youth group, and now they don't even want anything to do with Jesus. How does that happen? Well, the parable tells you that's going to happen. I suspect a number of you struggle in two ways when you see this parable outworked with people in your life. Parents, this is an occupational hazard for you. You sow the seed in your home. You, you try to live the gospel, not perfectly of course, but you try to live the gospel in your life. Your child you know, makes an initial uh, you know, commitment to Christ, it looks like to you. By all external uh, measures, they're walking with Christ, but then in later high school years, or maybe they go off to college or in their young adult years, to your horror you find out they've walked away from everything you've taught them. And what you're tempted to do, you're tempted to do one of two things. Number one, you're tempted to wonder, is the seed of the gospel really powerful? And the other thing you will try to do is you will try to change the soil of your child's life. And that's not going to work. You'll manipulate, you'll harangue them, try to guilt them back into the kingdom or something, and none of that is correct. Jesus is trying to help us understand that in the present form of the kingdom, between his arrival and his coming again, where his kingdom will be fully established, our job is to sow the seed and we're going to get all kinds of different reactions. That shouldn't throw us. That shouldn't, I mean, it may grieve us to some extent. It shouldn't throw us. It shouldn't cause us to doubt the power of the gospel. It shouldn't cause us to stop sowing the seed. And that's the second reality of the kingdom. There's going to be different responses to the gospel of the kingdom of God and you need to be prepared for that. Now, Let's look at the third reality, is that the word of God, the seed, has its own power. 
Let's look at the second parable in verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This parable describes the nature of the present kingdom. It describes to us that the seed in and of itself, the gospel, the word of God has its own power. We don't understand how the power works. We don't understand how it grows. It's a mystery. We're called to sow like the farmer did, plant the seeds. But how it grows is is God's job. It's God's responsibility. It's only what he can do. We cannot change the soil of the people's lives around us. We, have, we don't have that kind of power. We cannot manage or control the process, but we can sow the seed. Our responsibility is to share, to sow. We need to be faithful no matter what the responses are. And while we don't understand how the power of the gospel moves, we need to trust God that as we sow, he will see fit to take some of those seeds and grow them up in people's life and change them. That's what he does while we sow the seed. He sought to give you great encouragement. We can share the word, we can share the gospel. We can share our own personal experience of that gospel. We can be faithful. But we don't need to take responsibility for making the seed bear fruit because we don't have that kind of power. We don't fully understand how it works. It's God's work, it's a mystery. The seed has its own power and this releases us from taking on responsibilities that are not given to us. And yet it makes it very clear what we are responsible for is sowing the seed. Last week at the GO Conference, John Watson, who grew up in Princeton, was here. He was sharing his testimony of ministry, etc. cetera. He, he, he's uh, one of our global partners in Los Angeles. He works with impoverished communities in Los Angeles. What he told us, and if you, weren't, if you didn't hear, you should go back and look at this from last week, uh, the nine o'clock service. One of the things he and his team does in the impoverished neighborhoods that he's a part of is they take prayer walks. They just walk through the neighborhood and they pray. And then when they interact with people, they try to engage people. Sow the seed. Okay. What he told us last Sunday is that on Saturday, he's here in Princeton, he decided to do a prayer walk in Princeton just like he does in Los Angeles. And he's walking around downtown Princeton. And he's praying. And asking God to show him who to talk to and praying for God to work and, and, and grow the seed of the gospel up in Princeton. And he informed us that he had three fairly significant conversations with people in downtown Princeton who were open to hearing about the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he told us, you need to do that. The seed has its own power. We're responsible to sow the seed, not grow the seed, not change the soil of anybody's life. We can't do that. But we are told to be faithful, to sow the seed wherever we are.
The fourth reality, God's kingdom appears small and insignificant, but ultimately it will be quite large. Take a look at the parable of the mustard seed, verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. It's a parable of the mustard seed. Jesus is probably talking about the black mustard plant. It is one of the very smallest seeds. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God today, between now and the time Jesus comes back, it often looks insignificant. It often is not, you can't measure it all that well. It seems insignificant. It starts small. But when that black mustard seed plant grows, it can grow up to 10 feet tall. So the birds can actually nest in that garden plant. But it looks insignificant. And think about the readers, Mark's original readers. They're in Rome. I mean, think about, well, just think about what Jesus did. He spent three years with 12 guys. One of them betrayed Jesus. The other 11 ran away at the most crucial point. We're told in other parts of the Gospels that there were 72 who were following Jesus. We know that 500 people were, were watching Jesus ascend. We know that 120 people were in the upper room when the Spirit of God descended. That's a pretty small movement after three years of work. The, now Mark's readers are under persecution from Nero, and they probably thought, I don't know if we're going to survive. I don't know if the kingdom of God can progress in this kind of an environment. And little did they know, in just a few hundred years, Christianity would become the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. It's the mustard seed. It looks insignificant. It looks like it's not growing. It looks like, well, when is anything happening? But in time, God grows his kingdom and it becomes this gigantic garden plant, 10 feet tall, birds can nest in it. That's the nature of the kingdom. Some of you probably read a lot of uh, articles. I, I read these all the time. It really makes me feel good where every writer seems to be saying over and over again, the North American church is dying. You see that all the time. Southern Baptist Church lost half a million members last year. It's the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Sometimes when I read these articles, I just say to myself, how long is it before I can stop and you know, retire? You know, maybe I'll get out but before it's dead. But that's not the whole story, actually. Even in North America. I encourage you to read a, uh, an article in the New York Times by uh, Tish, uh, uh, Tish uh, Harrison, um, um, Tish Warren Harrison. It's in the New York Times, March 26th. She's a believer. She writes in the New York Times. Actually, there are believers who write for the New York Times. Think about that, okay? Tish Warren writes this article on March 26th, and then on April 9th, CNN did an almost similar story. Now, if CNN and Tish Warren Harrison agree, it's probably the truth. What they're saying is that while, yes, it is true in a number of denominations, Christianity does seem to be dying in many ways. 
But that's not the whole story. See, what's different about America than Europe is that because the United States has so many immigrants coming into work to go to school, to come into our country, many of these immigrants from other nations in the global south in particular are believers in Jesus Christ. And what is happening is the church of Jesus Christ is growing factually quite well among the immigrant communities and their children. And that influx is also starting to impact the rest of the church in North America. It's a mustard seed, my friends. It looks insignificant. It doesn't look like it's happening. But it is happening. Tish Warren concludes the article by saying, the future is not with, necessarily in America, with white evangelicals or white progressives, actually. It's the multi-ethnic church, largely led by immigrants and the children of immigrants that have the potential to revive and revitalize and see the church continue to grow. When you look at the world, you see this all over the place. In 1900 in Africa, there were very few believers. Now there's almost a billion followers of Jesus Christ in the continent of Africa. You look at Korea. In 1900, almost very few believers in Korea. And even after the country was divided, after the Korean War. Now Korea, sort of per capita, sends out more global partners than any other country on the face of the earth. It's a mustard seed. It may not look like much. It may look very insignificant, but God is growing his kingdom and eventually it will be this incredible group of people from every corner of the world. I've got a cousin who lives in Chicago. He's about seven or eight years younger than me. I used to play, I used to see him about once a year at Christmas. We'd come to see the grandparents. We often played football together. We had many, many imaginary NFC championship games between the Cowboys and the Bears. And because I was eight years, you know, seven, eight years old, six, seven, eight years older than him, I usually won. Cowboys won a lot of NFC championships in the front yard of my grandparents. One of those times as we were playing football, again, I was probably 14 years old. I can hardly remember this conversation, but Jonathan has told me it's true. I shared the gospel with him. And he came to faith in Christ. I can hardly remember that. I was 14. I thought about sports and food, mostly. I shared the gospel. I'm sure it wasn't very great presentation. Shared the gospel with him. A few weeks ago, he emailed me and said, hey, I, I want you to get online at my church. And I, I was able to lead communion meditation for the whole church. He's actually studying at Moody Bible Institute now, going through a correspondence course, learning theology, wanting to do more ministry. And so I turned on in his church's online service and I watched him give an incredible communion message. And, and I wept, I wept. I wept because I, I sowed a little bit of the seed at, at, at age 14. I can barely remember the conversation, but what did God do? He took that seed and grew it into Jonathan's life. And now he's telling hundreds of people 
about the beauty and the glory of the gospel in communion. And as he talked about the bread that symbolized the body of Christ and the, and the, and the, and the, and 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 the wine that, that represents the blood of Jesus Christ, he wept and said, "I can't believe Jesus has saved me." And he saved you and he's brought us together in a community of believers and one day we will drink again with that Jesus in his new kingdom. And when I saw that I wept and I thought of the mustard seed. Things start small in God's kingdom. The whole kingdom of God started in the weakness of God dying on a cross. Not a great beginning. But he grows his kingdom. Our responsibility is to sow the seed. God does everything else. We need to be faithful to sow that seed. So let's bow together in prayer as we prepare for communion. I'd like to ask the servers to come forward and you can have a seat up front. Mr. Bowerheads, I'm going to lead us in a time of confession. I want that confession to spill over as we, we pass out the bread. And then we'll sing together during the cup. But let's bow together in a prayer of confession. Lord Jesus, you have given us the gospel, the seed of the word of God, and you have brought many of us to yourself through your powerful work of the, in the word by the spirit. We thank you, Lord, for that gift. But Lord, we acknowledge that sometimes we take that gift, that incredible gift, and we are fairly nonchalant about it. We take it for granted what Jesus did for us. We forget how much he poured out his life completely for us. And we don't live in the joy of that salvation. Lord, forgive us for that. But I also pray that you would forgive us for not sowing the seed of the word. Someone sowed it to us and we've been given the task to sow to others. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we have lost confidence in the power of the seed of the gospel. Forgive us for the ways we've tried to manipulate the soil of someone else's life rather than trust the simple sharing of that word, trusting God to do what he can do while being faithful to the task God has given us. Lord, forgive us for the way we, we often look at news reports and rumors and we, 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 we see present dangers to the spread of God's kingdom and we lose hope and confidence because we forget the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's insignificant. You can't always see it. And we fail to trust that in spite of the opposition to your word, you are growing your kingdom as you see fit. Lord, as we take the bread and we take the cup, may we be overjoyed once again. May we be reinvigorated 
by what you have done for us. And may that grace motivate us to live lives pleasing to you, to sow the seed, to live lives pleasing to you in front of a world that's focused on the wrong kingdom and can't see unless you work, can't see the beauty of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.